Romans chapter 8, verse 13 reads this way. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Lord, we ask that you'd make these words powerful in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Last Sunday morning, we started a new series called Putting Sin to Death. And what we wanted to do last Sunday morning was get to the bottom of sin. In other words, we wanted to get underneath the sinful acts and words and attitudes and thoughts and find out where they're stemming from. Where are they flowing from? What's the root underneath all of these fruits of sin? And so we went to Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, and expounded that text. And what we discovered is that at the very bottom of sin is a preference for something else other than God in our life. Do you remember Romans 1 tells us that sin worships and serves the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever? Sin exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And I suggested to you that what that lie is, is that this something else is better than God. It's more glorious than God. It's more satisfying than God. So really at the bottom of sin is this tendency towards idolatry in, in a, a million different forms in our life, preferring something else other than God. Well, this morning we're going to move further. Now that we know where sin is stemming from, preferring something over God, we want to take a look at Romans 8.13, and really this series is going to be an exposition of this verse. And I want you to look at the immediate context first. The immediate context is verse 12. Verse 12 introduces the subject of the mortification of sin. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that that verse ends with a dash. Not all versions do this, but mine does. And that dash... The little line that tells you that Paul never completes his thought. We would expect him to say, So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but we are under obligation to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. Right? That would be the natural way that we would expect him to say what he was about to say. But he stops in the middle of his thought and runs down this rabbit trail. Now, why does he do that? Because, he says, we're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh, and then he, he knows in his mind what will happen if someone lives according to the flesh, and it is so important that he has to change directions and address that subject right away before it, it gets away from him. So that's what verse 13 is there for. It's to tell us why it is so important that people do not live according to the flesh. Now let's just take verse 12 for a minute and think about what he's saying. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, or we are debtors, not to the flesh. Why are we not under obligation to the flesh? Well, you're not under obligation to it, first of all, because... The flesh has been trying to kill you since the day you were born. Are you really going to be under obligation to your murderer? Are you obliged to do something for the one, the, the thing that's trying to kill you and destroy you? That's what the flesh is. 
All we are under obligation to do related to the flesh is make war on it. That's it. As Christians, you are under obligation to make war with the flesh, but not to obey it. As a Christian, according to Romans 6, you have been delivered from the dominion of sin, and you no longer have to obey the dictates of your flesh. You're not under obligation to do it anymore. If you do it, it's your choice, but you don't have to. You've been set free by the power of Jesus Christ. And so we're not under obligation to that old corrupt nature. That's how I'm going to define flesh. Your old corrupt human nature from which springs all of these evil actions, thoughts, and words, and deeds. You're not under obligation, but you are under obligation to the Holy Spirit. And what does it look like to live according to the Spirit? Well, verse 13 tells us, To live according to the Spirit means that you put to death by the Spirit the sinful deeds of the body. That's what it means to live according to the Spirit. Look at verse 14. For, let me explain what I just said in verse 13. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Okay, you hear people talking about being led by God or being led by the Holy Spirit? What they usually are trying to tell you is that the Holy Spirit gave me specific direction today. I was going to do this, but he led me to do this instead. Well, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about being led by the Spirit, it doesn't use that kind of, uh, of language. To be led by the Spirit in the context of Romans 8, 12, 13, and 14 is to be putting to death the deeds of the body. How does the Holy Spirit lead somebody? Generally, he leads them to crucify, to put to death sinful deeds in their body. That's how the Holy Spirit's going to lead you. When you live according to the Spirit, this is the natural fruit, making war on sin, killing sin in your life. Okay, now, having said that about the immediate context, we want to really zero down in on verse 13. We want to hone in on it. We want to like take a a magnifying glass and enlarge it and really look at it. And there's five principal parts of this verse. There is a duty. There are the persons enjoined to perform the duty. There's a promise. There's a warning. And there's also a power. So the duty... Put to death the deeds of the body. The persons. You. You are putting to death the deeds of the body. The promise. You will live. The warning. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And then the power. By the Spirit. They're all there in verse 13. We're going to take three of those this morning and two of those next Sunday. The three we're going to take today are the promise and the warning because those things actually go together like a hand and glove. The promise of eternal life and the warning. And then we're going to talk about the persons that are called to perform the duty. Next week we'll talk about the duty itself of putting to death the deeds of the body and then also the power by which we perform that duty, the power of the Holy Spirit. So the promise and the warning. The promise and the warning have to do with living and dying. If you do this, you're going to die. If you do this, you're going to live, according to Paul. 
Now, what does he mean by dying? For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Does he mean physical death? Well, no, he can't mean that because whether or not you live according to the flesh, you're going to die physically. You can live according to the Spirit and you're still going to die physically. So he can't be meaning physical death. Others believe that when he talks about dying, Paul is talking about not being able to enjoy your spiritual life. That's what they think he means by die. Uh, in fact, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, This does not suggest that a believer who sins will face eternal death in hell. Instead, it means he will not enjoy his spiritual life. He will seem like an unsaved person and will be unable to enjoy the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Now, that may be true, but I don't think that's what Paul means here. I don't think that's what he means. Because where else in the Scripture does Paul use the word die to mean not being able to enjoy your spiritual life. I'm, I'm not aware of any other verse that Paul uses where he uses die in that sense. It seems foreign to his writings. Not only that, but in the same book, go back to chapter 6, the last verse of chapter 6 in Romans, Paul talks about death there. And he says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice he's contrasting death and life. But what kind of life? Eternal life. So what kind of death must he be talking about? Eternal death. What is eternal death? That's hell. And when you go back into the 19th, 18th, 17th, and 16th centuries and read the older commentators, that's what they believed he was talking about. It's just in our generation where we have Christianity light, where we've invented, I think we've invented new doctrines that don't stem from the Scripture. And it's because we believe in a salvation without sanctification, a non-lordship salvation. We believe in a salvation where all you simply do is um, raise your hand in an evangelistic meeting or you say a sinner's prayer or you walk down an aisle and someone pronounces you saved forever and there's nothing you can ever do to lose it and it's actually sin to ever doubt it again. We've invented this whole crazy system where we think conversion is a matter of making some kind of emotion in a meeting somewhere or saying a certain prayer. The Bible never says that conversion is that. Conversion is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And without repentance and faith, my friend, you're not converted. I don't care how many sinners' prayers you prayed. You've got to repent and you've got to trust Jesus. So we have this new, this new doctrine that salvation is simply repeating a prayer or walking an aisle and you're eternally saved. It doesn't matter if you grow in holiness or not. It doesn't matter if you persevere to the end or not. You're saved and you should never doubt it again. Well, I believe that's not true. It's not biblical. So, no, I don't believe this is talking about just not being able to enjoy your spiritual life. I believe it means the same thing as Romans 6.23. It's talking about eternal death. Paul is laying out eternal life and eternal death. Heaven and hell. And Paul is saying, if you go walk this road... The destination is hell. If you live according to the flesh, you're walking down the broad way that leads to what? Destruction. If you walk down this narrow road by living according to the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body, you will find life. 
destruction and life, heaven and hell. There are only two roads. There's a great big road that most people are walking down, and they're going to the wrong place. And there's a narrow road that some walk, and they will end up at the right place. So, you say, Brian, can it really mean that? I mean, if this was the only place in the Word of God where this doctrine was taught, I might say, well, maybe it doesn't mean that. Maybe we should try to find another interpretation. But my friends, this same truth that I'm talking to you today is taught many times in the Bible. And I want to show you, how many do I have here? One, two, three. I have four passages I want you to turn to and take a look at. Okay, the first is Hebrews 12. Verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, does that sound hard to understand or unclear or vague in any way to you? It doesn't sound unclear at all to me. It sounds as clear as human language can make it. That if you're not pursuing sanctification, you won't see the Lord. Period. Okay? Let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I think there are probably many people in the church today who don't know that. They don't know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They doubt that. Let's go on. Do not be deceived. Now, I have underlined that because I think so many people in America are deceived. <laughs> Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you by this. Neither fornicators, and you understand what that means? Young people having sex with someone you're not married to. That's fornication. Neither fornicators nor idolaters worshiping a false god, nor adulterers having sex with another per person married to somebody else, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That pretty pretty easy to understand that, right? A person who is living in these sins, according, he's living according to the flesh, he's going to die. He will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. Such were some of you. You used to be fornicators, drunkards, effeminate, homosexuals. That described your old life. But you were washed. You were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansed from all sin. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the sight of an all-holy God based on the work of Christ. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Okay, let's move over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3. 
Paul says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty. (laughs) That's another underline. (laughs) The problem is so many people don't know this with certainty. But bridge folks, I hope that after today you know this with certainty. There's no question about this statement he's about to make that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I don't care who the teacher is on TV or the radio or the internet. If they tell you something different than what Paul is telling you here, don't listen to them. Don't let them deceive you. Their words are empty. They're false. Turn off the television set. Turn off the radio because they're telling lies to you. Paul's telling you the truth. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things you won't enjoy your spiritual life. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, the people that are living in this life are sons of disobedience. They're unregenerate. They're not saved. Now, they may go to church... They may call themselves Christians. They may take the Lord's Supper. They may do all of that. But they're sons of disobedience. Their life is characterized by disobedience. They're living according to the flesh and they must die. So do you see that Romans 8.13 is not teaching some strange, unusual, weird doctrine. It's taught in Hebrews 12.14. It's taught in 1 Corinthians 6.9-11. It's taught in Ephesians 5.3-6. And it's taught by Jesus Christ. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, some people have tried to apply this literally. Um, I forget the name of the fellow in church history. He actually gouged his eye out thinking that that would save him from sin. The problem was he had another eye. (laughs) (laughs) And if he gouged them both both out, he had a memory and an imagination in his head. I I think Jesus isn't telling us to do these things literally. He's trying to make a, a point, a really, really strong point. And the point is, you need to do whatever it takes to deal radically with sin in your life, because if you don't, you're in danger of hell. Would you say that's a fair assessment? He talks about it's better to tear out one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, deal radically with the sin that's causing you to lust or causing you to do these sinful actions. Don't negotiate with sin. Don't compromise with sin. Don't say, sin, you can have this much and no more. Don't make provision for sin. Deal with it. Cut it off. Gouge it out. In other words, you have to deal violently with it. You have to make war on it. 
The language of the New Testament is not mollycoddle your sin and make it your buddy and just tell him to go away when you don't like him. It's kill him. (laughs) Take out a sword and thrust it through him. Get that thing bloody. See what I mean? The New Testament is violent when it comes to dealing with sin. So this truth is not taught once. This truth is taught all over the place in the New Testament, which brings up a problem with us, doesn't it? It's an intellectual problem. So does this mean that a true Christian can lose his salvation? Because Paul says in Romans 8.13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And Paul is talking to professing, he's writing to professing Christians because he says in verse 12, I think it is, he calls them brethren. So then, brethren, that's his audience. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. So another question we could ask is, does Paul mean that we can earn our salvation by killing our sin? Well, that's absurd, isn't it? It's absurd because the rest of the New Testament teaches us that salvation comes as a gift by the grace of God, not by earning it or working for it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not as a result of works that any man should boast. That's clear, right? So I can't mean that. He's speaking to brethren. He's saying to these brethren that they could end up in hell if they live according to the flesh. And you say, well, wait a minute, Brian. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How can you be telling me that these believers can end up in hell if Paul has already told us in the same chapter that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And towards the end of the same chapter, in verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Every person who is predestined is also called, and every person who is called is also justified, and every single person who is justified is also glorified. Meaning, if you've been saved, it's as rock-solid certain that you're going to be in heaven. There is no question if God has justified you whether you're going to make it to heaven or not. You will. It's a promise. Absolute promise. And he ends up the chapter in verses twenty or 38 and 39 by saying that there is nothing that can ever separate the child of God from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what do we do with this? It seems like there's two different truths taught in the Bible that are in tension, (laughs) and that sometimes we don't know how to put together. And here are the two truths. Number one, if a person lives according to the flesh, they will go to hell whether they say they are a believer or not. We've already studied that, and we've seen it in Scripture. I'll say that one again. If a person lives according to the flesh, they will perish in hell, no matter what profession they make. Second truth, a true believer is absolutely secure and can never be lost. Both those things are taught in Romans chapter 8. So what do we do with that? It seems like there's so much tension between those two truths. Do we just throw one of them away? That's how some people deal with it. They throw one of the truths away. Either they throw away the security of the believer and say the believer is not secure, or they say they throw away the truth that 
if a person lives according to the flesh, that they're going to perish in hell. And they say, that's not true. You're eternally secure if you made your decision for Christ. And I want to urge you to take both of those truths in each one of your hands and hold on to them. And then try to pull them together and try to help those things reconcile. And how do you do that? How do you try to reconcile those things? There's lots of things in the Bible like that. By the way, this isn't the only time. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are truths taught in the Bible. And don't throw one of those away. Don't say, well, God can't be sovereign if I'm responsible to repent and believe. Or I can't be responsible to repent and believe if God is sovereign. No, they're, they're both true. And whether you can understand how they fit together or not, you got to hold on to both if you want to be a Christian because they're both in Scripture. So I believe the answer is this. The answer is not that a true believer loses his salvation because there are many who profess to be believers who are not. They may look like it to us and maybe we can't tell the difference as we look around. God knows. We don't always know. A lot of people look good on the outside, but there's no Holy Spirit within. They're natural. Void of the Spirit. Unregenerate. Never having experienced the supernatural power of God, the life of God in their soul. So if a person lives according to the flesh, that's proving that he is unregenerate. Because if he's regenerate, he won't do that. He can't. The Holy Spirit who lives in him won't let him go on living according to the flesh. And I'll save this for next time, but just give you a little glimpse. It says he lives according to the flesh. That denotes ongoing activity. It's his pattern. It's his lifestyle to live according to the flesh. Now, a believer struggles against the flesh, and sometimes he fails, right? But he doesn't live according to the flesh. He fights it. You know, in a war, there's lots of battles. And sometimes we lose the battle, but end up winning the war. That's the way it is in the Christian life. We might lose a battle here or there, but we're going to win the war. Because the Spirit is in us. Look back at Romans chapter 8 and take a look at some of the passages that talk about the flesh. Verse 5, Romans 8, 5. For those who are, and notice the, how he phrases this, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Or look at verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Then notice verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, and now just put these phrases together. There are certain people in this world who are according to the flesh. And there are others who are according to the Spirit. Those people over here who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And verse 13 tells us they live according to the flesh. They are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, and then they live out their lives according to the flesh. These people, according to verse 9, are in the flesh. That's another way of saying that they're still in Adam. 
They're still unsaved. They're still unregenerate. They've never crossed over from death to life. They're in this other camp over here. So what Paul is saying in Romans 8.13, I believe, is that if you are an unregenerate person who just naturally lives life according to flesh, you must die. But if you have been converted, transformed, regenerated, recreated, so that the Spirit of God dwells in you, with a natural result that you begin to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So no, the answer is not that a true believer loses his salvation. Well, you say, well, then why does Paul tell the brethren in verse 12 that they can perish, that they could die? Because Paul is writing to lots of people. He doesn't know how many of them are regenerate or not. There, in every church, there's a mixed group. Some saved, some lost. And so, according to the judgment of charity, he's just talking about brethren. I even do this with my employees. <laughs> I call them all brother all the time. <laughs> but I'm not really saying that they're saved. I mean, it's just the way I speak to them. But, I mean, Paul would just address the church as brethren. But some of those so-called brethren may not be true brethren. So killing sin is not the way a person gets saved. It's the way God shows us that we are saved. Killing sin is not the root of your salvation. It's the fruit of your salvation. It's not the cause. It's the effect. It's not the ground. It's the proof. <laughs> but let me make it very clear. Killing sin is absolutely necessary as evidence that you're saved. If you don't, if you're not killing sin, if you're not waging war against your sin, that's a, a that could be a very clear sign to you that you're not even born again and that you need to start at ground zero. You need to look to Christ to be saved because you're not yet in the kingdom. See, God leads his people to heaven through both promises and warnings. A worldly professing Christian could hear Romans 8.13 and they would think, ah, I'm not concerned about dying. Why should I be concerned about that? I prayed the sinner's prayer. I raised my hand at an evangelistic meeting. Billy Graham called for people and I went to the front. I'm in. I'm good to go. There's no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ. Everyone who's justified is also glorified. And so there's no trembling before the Lord in this person's life. They're carnal, they're worldly, and they're deluded. And if they continue living according to the flesh, they're going to wake up on judgment day and find that they're a goat and they're being cast into the lake of fire. But a person who's one of God's elect, when they read verse 13 or they hear it being preached, they tremble before the word and they think, that could be me. I could perish if I live according to the flesh. And they repent. They, they run from that sin. They fly to Jesus Christ. They look to him and say, Lord, save me or I perish. They look to Christ to give them both, not just the, the guilt of sin removed, but the power of sin overcome. And they say, Lord, help me to put to death this sin. And they begin laboring and waging war against that sin in their life. That's, that's the attitude of the true child of God. And God uses the warnings in his life 
Not just the promises of everlasting life, but the warnings of damnation if he persists in living according to the flesh. God will use that, both of those, to lead us safely to heaven. They're like guardrails on that narrow road that leads to life. On the one side, there are promises, and on the other side, there's warnings. And God uses those to hem us in so we don't go flying over the side and get into a ditch somewhere. But we stay on the road, and we make it to our destination. Now, there we have the promise and the warning. Let's look at the persons in Romans 8.13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who is this you he's talking about? Well, it's the same you as in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, This is a person who dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or verse 10, For if Christ is in you, it's a person that Christ is in. Or verse 11, the last part, He will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is addressing believers, professing believers, those who call themselves Christians, and he says the Spirit of God dwells in you, Christ dwells in you, This is the you that he has in mind. And what I want you to see is that he's not saying to non-Christians, he's not addressing spiritually lost people that he knows are lost and saying, you've got to put to death the deeds of the body. Do you know why he wouldn't say that? Because they can't anyway. They're spiritually dead. They're slaves to sin. They've got the ball and chain around their wrists and sin is their slave master, dragging them around to do whatever he wants them to do. They haven't been freed. They're slaves. So it's impossible for the unregenerate man to kill sin in his life. He's the slave of sin. So he's addressing professing Christians. So what we need to understand is, is the responsibility to kill sin in our life is on us. Notice Paul doesn't say, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if the Holy Spirit puts to death the deeds in your body, you'll live. He didn't say it like that, does he? He says, but if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, who is accountable? Who is responsible to put to death the deeds of the body? Me. (laughs) You. If you ever quit sinning, it's because you quit sinning. It's not because God did it apart from you. In fact, God will not kill the sin in your life apart from your active involvement. You're going to have to kill the sin. Now, you will never be able to do it without the Holy Spirit. And that's next Sunday's message. (laughs) You'll never be able to do it without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's not going to do it without you. He's not going to let you passively sit by, sort of sitting on your hands, waiting for a holy zap to to deliver you from drunkenness or drug addiction or pornography or whatever your sin happens to be. You will be very actively involved. We're personally responsible for this. Now, what I would like to do is show you through the book of Romans the person that Paul is addressing. I'll just lay it out for you real quick. Number one, it's a person for whom Christ died Number two, a person who died with Christ. 
Well, now, I'll just stop at those two for now. So it's a person for whom Christ died, Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? So the person Paul is talking to is a person for whom Christ died. Christ bore his sins, bore his judgment and guilt on the cross, bore it away, took the penalty. We love that truth. That's the truth that we have to know in order to come into the kingdom. But that's not the only thing he tells us in this book about our identity. Go to chapter 6. You're going to also see that this is a person who died with Christ. Look at Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? If grace is such a wonderful thing, why don't we just keep sinning so that we can experience more and more grace? That's the question. The answer? God forbid! <laughs> May it never be! Exclamation mark. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You say, what are you talking about, Paul? What are you talking about? How shall we who died to sin? What do you mean we died to sin? That's what he's going to go on to explain in chapter 6 how the believer has died to sin. He says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now verse 2 says that we died to sin. Verse 6 says that we were crucified with him. You say, how, do, how was I crucified with Jesus? I wasn't even born yet. That was 2,000 years ago. This doesn't make any sense to my little pea brain. <laughs> how does this work? Well, it works. If you keep on reading in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it works through union. Look at verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? I do not think he's talking about water baptism there. I don't think there's a drop of water in verse 3. I think he's talking about spiritual union. And I make that claim because of verse 5. You'll see it when we get there. I think he's talking about being immersed into Christ. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit puts you into Christ. He immerses you into Jesus. Look at verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 5 explains it. For... If we have become united with him, see that? In the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. This baptism in verses 3 and 4 is really a union in verse 5. So when he talks about being baptized into Christ's death and baptized into his resurrection, what he means is that you've been united to Christ so that Christ's death becomes yours. When he died, you died in him so that your old self is crucified, according to verse 6. And also, when he rose, you rose in him, and that's why you're experiencing this newness of life. It's because you were grafted. You're cut out of the tree of Adam and grafted into the tree of Christ. His life pulses through you, and his history becomes your spiritual history. What he's meaning is that as a Christian, you have a brand new nature and a brand new identity. The old man that you were in Adam is gone. And unless somehow somebody could come and lop you off of the tree of Christ and graft you back into the tree of Adam, 
That history is gone forever, and that can never happen again. That's why he says in chapter 8, there's nothing that can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a new person, a new nature, a new identity. You are one with Jesus. Your old man's dead. you got this new person alive in Christ. It's kind of like one of those huge jumbo jets. Don't you look at those jumbo jets? They weigh 500 tons. Now, folks, that's a million pounds. And somehow this hunk of metal weighing a million pounds soars through the air without falling and crashing to the ground. How in the world do you get a million pounds just to glide through the air? Let's, let's take a jumbo jet and take off its wings. And it's just this narrow tube. And it's got this huge engine on it, right? So you take it to the salt flats of Utah and you shoot it down those salt flats and it's going 200 miles an hour. But does it rise into the air without wings? It'll never get off the ground. Why? Because the law of lift only works with these wings. That jumbo jet has to be configured to have these wings so that the air rushing past it can lift it up. Folks, in the new birth, God gave you wings. He reconfigured you. He recreated you. He made you different so that now it is possible for you to fly. Before, you had no possibility. You were earthbound. Now you're heaven-bound to glory. God has given you the ability to kill sin where you never had that ability before. He's given you dominion over sin. If you take it up in Him and, and take that responsibility and set about the work of killing it, you can conquer sin. Of course, our problem is we just don't believe that so many times. We have to have faith in the Word of God. That he's given you wings. He's made you new. He's, your old self is dead with Christ. You're risen with him. So here's the formula I want you to remember. He, this is referring to Christ, he was killed for your sin. You were killed in him. Now, kill sin in yourself. That's how the Bible treats sanctification. He was killed for your sin. You were killed in him. Now kill sin in yourself. Notice it's not, he was killed for your sin. You were killed in him. Now he'll kill all the sin in yourself. <laughs> wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? Just sit around and wait for him to kill all your sin. Well, he will be working. That's absolutely true. But he won't do it without your active involvement. We're going to have to wage war. We're going to have to take up a, uh, a sword, which we're going to talk about next Sunday. How do we take up this sword and do battle against sin? So I have two concluding exhortations for you this morning. Number one, let us fear. Let us fear. I want you to let the weight of this passage, Romans 8.13, hit you like a ton of bricks. And don't wriggle out from underneath it and say, well, that applies to everybody else, but not me. It applies to you. It applies to me. If I live according to the flesh, I must die. Preach that to yourself. If I go on living according to the flesh, I must die. But if I, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, I will live. There's the good part, right? You've got bad news and you've got good news in this text. So let it, let it hit you. This has got to become earth-shatteringly important to you. You need to be in blood earnest about killing your sin. In other words, 
This is not an option for the Christian life. You can take or leave. Heaven and hell are at stake in this. Do you sense the gravity of that? Eternal life, eternal death are at stake. And whether you live according to the flesh or you live according to the Spirit. Now, many pastors will never talk to their congregation like Paul talks to the Romans. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid that their people are going to fall short, and then what? They're afraid that their people will be afraid. If he, if he, if, if he preached Romans 8, 13, but see, that's the whole point. We're supposed to be afraid when we read Romans 8, 13. You say, Brian, wait a minute. Isn't fear of the devil, you know, isn't all fear wrong? Well, no, it's not. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. This is inspired scripture. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear. If a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. You hear that? We're supposed to fear lest we come short of entering into the rest of God. He's talking about salvation rest. So, there is a healthy fear that causes you to tremble at the word of God and causes you to look to Jesus Christ and causes you to run from sin and causes you to do battle against your enemy. That's good. And I want to call you this morning to fear, to fear missing heaven because you live your whole life according to the flesh. Don't be one of those people. And number two, let us take responsibility. We've got to take responsibility for our sanctification. God's not going to sanctify you when you sit on your hands and wait for him to zap you. There's something that you and I are to do, right? We just read it in the text. It's put to death the deeds of the body. It's our part. Yes, we do it by the Spirit, but we must do it. So we must make choices. We must believe the Word of God. We must act on the Word of God in faith. You say, well, Brian, how do we do it? I mean, exactly, how do you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? That's next Sunday's message. So come back for next Sunday. Okay? Lord, please, this morning, grant us grace to take seriously this, this sanctification. Please help us, Lord Jesus, that we would not be unconcerned, deluded, worldly person who just thinks that we're okay because we made a profession one day. Lord, if there's anybody here like that, please wake them up. Wake them up to the reality that conversion is more than saying a prayer. That conversion means a life lived with the power of Christ in them. Lord, may we be awakened to pursue holiness as a church. May you help us to spur each other on, to stimulate one another, to keep going, to persevere, to engage in good deeds. Use every single Sunday morning service, Lord, to help us persevere down the narrow road that leads to life so that we won't get 
fall off the ditch one side or the other, but that we'd keep going and we'd help each other. We'd link arms with each other and say, let's go. Let's run. We can make this. We can do it. Lord, help us to do that for each other, to love each other that much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.